um, you know, as you've heard, I've know, known Dave for decades. And he is a workaholic. And he expects everybody else to be a workaholic. And he has worked my case this week. So I fly home with a great sense of relief <laughs> this afternoon. <laughs> All right. But it has been great to be here. And this is a subject that is not my chosen subject. There are some leaders in different nations, uh, mostly European, who asked me to get involved with this topic. And I'm doing it in collaboration with Alexander Fenter that you probably have heard of. And we are still on a journey, so I'm still developing my research and thinking. So the topic, thanks, Colleen, is the sexual identity ideology that is rapidly growing, particularly in the Western world today. And Dave prayed about us being bold. I think that we have to be very bold in how we uh, confront this in our lives and in our society today. So this is definitely not a theoretical subject, although there's a lot of theory in it. And what I'm going to end with, the biblical teaching that is the antidote is the teaching on the incarnation that God entered into a human body in Jesus and that Jesus rose from the dead and we are destined to have resurrected bodies like Jesus. So if, if ever those core parts of the gospel have been important, they are even more important today. Uh, the particular people that this is relevant to is, of course, course, pastors, how they care for their people, but particularly parents. If you are a parent of a teen or about to become a parent of a teen, or you are a teen or a young adult, um, we really need to equip you to navigate this society we live in. And that's really what I'm trying to do. So I'm going to be drawing on an author who is a Washington Post journalist, Abigail Schreer. She's Jewish, although she doesn't write from that point of view. And she's written this book called Irreversible Damage, which is already in nine uh, translations in different languages. And it is one of, if you are a parent of a teen and you don't know, you know, and you get sufficiently worried by what I'm talking about today, uh, I would really recommend this. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to quote quite a few paragraphs from what she says. Now, sexual dysphoria is a known medical phenomenon. And it's basically either through, you know, people have X and Y chromosomes, but there's a 0.00 something percent of the human population that are born with more of a different mix of that. We know there are some parts of the human race that are born with both genitals. And then we also know that there are children from earliest age who want to play with the opposite toys. You know, they are never quite happy. And that has been known, um, and it's not something that, that as Christians engaging in the subject, we want to either uh, not uh, be aware of or God forbid, 
that we are not sensitive and loving towards anybody born with that um, situation. What she says, and this is statistics, is that those who are children with, let's say, preferences towards the opposite gains, 70 to 80% of it resolves itself in later life. And usually puberty enhances the born biological gender and people become, let's say, more what they were born to be. And before 2012, 0.01% in Western society, typically boys, presented dysphoria. Now, I read an article yesterday, a news channel in the United States. They've just done a survey in mostly Western countries, but including South Africa, and they say now 9% of people are identifying as one of the possible 72 sexual identities that are choices today. So here is a quote of what's happening in the United States, but this is definitely mirrored in, in England, UK, and increasingly so in our society. This is the story America needs to hear. Whether or not you have an adolescent daughter, whether or not your child has fallen into this transgender craze, America has become fertile ground for this mass enthusiasm for reasons that have everything to do with our cultural frailty. In other words, it's not to do with medical science or that the human population's chromosome, you know, balance has all suddenly changed. Parents are undermined, experts are over-relied upon, dissenters in science and medicine are intimidated, free speech truckles under renewed attack, government health care law, labor laws uh, harbor hidden consequences, and an intersectional era has arisen in which the desire to escape a dominant identity encourages individuals to take cover in victim groups. Now that's a pretty pithy summary of a very big phenomenon that is taking place. And she says, here is it's a chapter she calls, calls The Puzzle. In America and across the Western world, adolescents were reporting a sudden spike in gender dysphoria, the medical condition associated with the social designation transgender. Between 2016 and 2017, the number of gender surgeries for natal females in the U United States quadrupled, with biological women, women suddenly accounting for, as we have seen, 70% of gender surgeries. In 2018, the UK reported a 4,400% rise over the pre previous decade in teenage girls seeking gender treatments. So this is a sudden, she calls it a hysteria. And, you know, one of the things, and I went into this a little bit uh, in the last few sessions um, over the weekend, is there's, all, there's always been this debate about our sexual identity that we land up with. Is it from nature or nurture? And I've just told you that there are factors from nature, can be uh, what happened when the mother was carrying in the womb, uh, can be very small minority, chromosome, you know, things like that. But a powerful reason that makes us end up like we are is nurture. In other words, how we grew up, the family we were in, 
the community we were in, and of course today, social media. And if that is shaping who you are, then that's a very different thing. And so it seems pretty obvious from the stats that the sudden rise in this is not from nature. Nature actually hasn't changed. The way nurture is taking place has changed. And that's where we are involved in a kind of ideological war. So she says, what makes this a contagion? And she says these things. The belief that nonspecific symptoms should be perceived as gender dysphoria and that their presence is proof of being transgender. See, when, when you know, okay, I'm about 100 years ago, long, long ago, when I was parenting children. If your child, female child, climbs trees, you don't conclude that she's a boy. You know what I mean? But today, you have a child just showing the slightest tendency to act out the other gender, and they say, oh, maybe that's what you, you should become. The belief that the only path to happiness is transition. Now, she goes into the whole thing that, you know, for most, well, I think all teenage girls, going through puberty is an uncomfortable experience. You know, suddenly having monthly cycles and all that. Um, and in this medical world where if you just don't feel quite right, you take a pill, they said, oh, you're not feeling comfortable, my dear. Maybe you need surgery, see. It's, it's sort of like we, we're in such a therapeutic age. The belief that anyone who disagrees with the self-assessment of being transgender or opposes the plan for transition is transphobic, abusive, and should be cut off. So if your child says, this is what I think I am and this is what I want, you are not allowed to try and dissuade your child. That's what this is saying. Um, and I'll end with the fact, you know, that there's a part of the brain that involves decision-making that only matures when you're about 22. So the idea that kids of six and eight should be making these choices without their parents' involvement is absolutely lunatic. But that is actually in law now in many Western countries. Now, I would like somebody to do this investigation for me, but my information is that our educational system is subsidized by the United Nations on the proviso that we teach the sex education curriculum in our schools. And so we really need parents to go and find out exactly what is happening in the curricula taught in our schools. And the same kind of social tendencies that have been happening in the US and England are sure to happen here because of this kind of influence. So. The origin. The phenomenon sweeping teenage girls is different than, you know, the up until 19, whenever 0.01%. It originates not in traditional gender dysphoria, but in videos found on the internet. It represents mimicry inspired by internet gurus, a pledge taken with girlfriends, hands and breath held, eyes squeezed tight, it should be, I think, for these girls, trans-identification offers freedom from anxiety's relentless pursuit, satisfies the deepest need for acceptance, the shrill of transgression, 
the seductive lilt of belonging. See, your peer group takes over from your family and everybody else in how you make decisions. This is the story of the American family. Decent, loving, hardworking, and kind. It wants to do the right thing. But it finds itself set in, in a society that increasingly regards parents as obstacles, bigots, and dupes. We cheer as teenage girls with no history of dysphoria steep themselves in a racial gender ideology taught in school or found on the internet. Peers and therapists and teachers and internet heroes egg these girls on. But here, the cost of so much youthful indiscretion is not a piercing or a tattoo, it's closer to a pound of flesh. Because when you start taking those hormones to stop puberty and then you have surgery, there's no way back. You can never have a child and it's, you know, and later in life if you regret it, sorry, it's been done. So where does this come from? And I spend a lot of time Friday and Saturday giving the roots actually going back very, very far uh, to today. And ideologies like this have a history. It's almost like a spiritual power that uh, nests in human society and culture. And from a Christian point of view, the biblical teaching is the powers, the invisible powers that become visible in social phenomena. And so to oppose them, we actually have to analyze, expose, and debunk the powers all right? And so that's what I was going into. So Shriya is right about the recent phenomenon. She references the sexual identity ideology, but that has a much longer genealogy. And so I'm just going to quote two or three statements by N.T. Wright. Now, N.T. Wright is the leading evangelical, charismatic, biblical scholar probably in the world today. You know, he's been a professor at Oxford and Cambridge and all sorts of Durham University, and um, he's a leading thinker in kingdom theology and very influential in the vineyard and new wine. And so in his book, Creation, Power, and Truth, he says this. We live, I suggest, in a world characterized by a certain types of Gnosticism. Don't worry about that strange word. I'm going to tell you about it in a moment. At the individual level... The great controlling myth of our time has been the belief that within each of us there is a real inner private self, long buried beneath layers of socialization and attempted cultural and religious control, and needing to be rediscovered if we are to live authentic lives. And then he talks about the biblical narrative of creation and how in the creation narrative, you know, our bodies are good and God made all things, he said, it's very good. He says that this is another story, that of Gnosticism, which declares that the outer world, both the wider world of society and the church and the outward world of my physical body, are irrelevant and indeed misleading. And that I must find within myself the spark of life and truth by which to reorder my whole existence. So, he talks about Gnosticism. Gnosticism started in the second century with beginnings in the first century. So the biblical writers are already starting to write 
an op opposition to it, a kind of apologetic against it. And then it has a long history right up to today, found in things like the New Age movement and so on in, in the world today, and especially in the sexual identity ideology. And there's an essential idea of Gnosticism that I'm just going to explain and then see, tell you how it's manifest in this ideology. The Gnostic worldview is dualistic. Dualism means two opposing things. So there's like, you know, an apple cut in half, but the one is opposing to the other. And in their worldview, spiritual reality and physical reality are in antithesis. They are opposed. And all spiritual reality is inherently good. And all physical reality is inherently bad. Which means that my body is bad, but my spirit is good. Now just think about it in the Bible. Are our bodies bad? No, when God made Adam and breathed into his you know, earthly body, and in the whole story of Genesis, he didn't only say it was good, which was nature, but he said it is very good. See, um, and is sin only found in the body? No, sin goes on in the mind and the emotions. And see, that whole idea is just completely different to the biblical idea. And so what comes from this, and this is what Wright is talking about, and, and the Gnostics said this, that locked in our evil bodies is a spark of divine nature. And essentially salvation is to let the spark of divinity in you escape from your body. Of course, and therefore death is a big thing because then they believe your, your, your soul or your spirit escapes from your body and it goes on this long journey back into the world of the spirit and leaves behind this horrible physical world. This is the true self. To discover this self is the basis of freedom, identity, and meaning. And, you know, you factor in a philosophy called existentialism that to find meaning and authenticity in life, you must make a decision about yourself. And only when you've come to that decision boldly and said, this is who I am, that you authenticate yourself, then you really have a life. Finding the self-discovered and self-determined self, notice I'm deliberately, self, 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 is a fundamental right like other human rights. It's very, very me, me thing, not community, me. So now, the way this has been shaped through a long history of ideas in more recent times uses this basic idea to say things like this. History, traditions, Social norms and institutions usually collide with the discovery of self. And those institutions include the church, family, and marriage. And they're saying, no, th those things are against me becoming my authentic self. In fact, they oppress me. They are part of the system, the outer world out there. The body I inhabit is not essentially who I am. The body is a thing which I can reject, override, transform, and subject to my true self. 
So it is fundamentally a dualism of the individual against their bodies. Now, you know, I don't think you need to be very smart to think about the fact that any idea that tells you to be at war with your body is not very healthy. You know, we, as doctors say, we are psychosomatic beings. So, now, key to this and the war today, the war of ideologies, is what is a human person. And the biblical teaching of human beings made in the image of God, body, soul, and spirit is very different. So, my friend Alexander Fenter has given this summary of what he calls biblical anthropology. Humans are created in God's image as male and female, relational moral beings accountable to God, and so he gives this line that summarizes all of it. I am loved, and I love, and therefore I am. To be a human is to be in community, to be in family. And we receive the love of God, and we give the love of God, and we love one another, and then, then you know, we love the world that is lost. And I'm adding this. Humans are not these fragmented fragmented beings where the spirit can go one way and the body can go the other way. Humans are body, soul, heart, mind, spirit combos. That's how the biblical teaching works. Paul talks about sanctifying your whole body, soul, and spirit. In other words, it's a holistic transformation that takes place if you're a Christian. So a few things about the history of this ideology. This is Alexander Fenter's summary. And I went through this uh, to rather exhaust the people on Friday and Saturday. So Dave exhausts me and I exhaust them. Um, so the history of philosophy that sort of brings us from ancient Gnosticism goes like this. Uh, the beginning of the Enlightenment, Descartes had this famous saying, I think, therefore I am. So out of that came the whole Western idea of rationalism, reason, the, you know, the, the, the um, enlightenment and the French Revolution enthroned reason as a goddess. It's all in the mind. Science, we are the superior Western civilization that is highly rationalistic. And part of that, by the way, is that we know that miracles don't happen because our minds are the whole thing. Then you go a bit further, and you get the origin of, of psychology, and there's nothing inherently wrong with psychology, but it's when it becomes what determines everything that it's a problem. I feel, therefore I am. And have you heard the phrase today, if it feels right, do it, right? Don't, please don't deny your feelings, um, you know, so... If you feel attracted to multiple people, just do it. And that leads to the sexualized self, Freud. Everything is sex. And so from that, we, we could say, I sexually desire, therefore I am. In fact, unless I let my sexual desires determine my fundamental sense of identity, I can never be an authentic human being. And if you look on Facebook today, there are 72 possible sexual identities. 
So, you know, it used to be LGBQ, and then they went plus. And then, you know, have you ever put your finger on a keyboard and, and it just keeps on going? So you've got LGB2 plus, and plus, like up to 72 possible sexual identities. And then the politis, political sexual self. I have my gender rights to be authentic. Therefore, I am. And so you have this very loud, angry advocacy groups that are saying all of society must accept our view about our gender identity. And this is a, this is a right like it is a right to not be persecuted because of your race or your gender. Now they're saying, no, we also have that kind of a right. And I think there's a whole confusion there about what human rights is about. Now, where this lands is views about abortion and gender transition. And this is like the scary landing in culture. So, first of all, human consciousness and the ability to choose makes a person a person. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything like that. The fact that we've been created by God and that we are loved makes us a person. But in this view, view choice has become the new God of the Western world. Don't stop anybody exercising the freedom to choose. And it's not so much about whether my choices might affect you negatively. Sorry about you. I have, am the sovereign individual. And in fact, now they're saying, until you get to the place where you are conscious enough and adult enough to make choices, you're not actually a human being. The true self is the one I discover within which leads to my choice to authenticate myself. The body is a thing which I can transcend and subject to my will. It is not essentially who or what I am. It follows that I have a right to choose one of many 72 sexual identity, identity preferences. I can choose to subject my body to surgery. And if I'm eight years old and I say I want... Uh, hormone treatment to delay puberty so I can have transition. Nobody must stop me making that choice. Because fetuses are not yet able to be conscious or make choices, they are not yet human. The same applies to a newborn baby. Abortion is the right of the mother because she is a human. She has consciousness to make choices. Ethically, and this is the argument of an ethicist professor at a university in the United States called Skinner, to euthanize a newborn baby is no different from abortion because a baby does not have consciousness sufficient to make choices. Human consciousness and choice applies to individuals, not families or communities. Therefore, children who have consciousness have a right to choose without reference to their family. So in England today, if you are an eight-year-old and you go to your school teacher and you say, I want to change and I want to get hormones to stop puberty and I don't want my parents to know, that school counsellor is legally bound to not tell the parents. 
And the NHS is legally bound to supply that child with the hormone therapy they require. Now, that could be where we are going in, in South Africa. So how are we going to confront this ideology? I've spent quite a lot of time telling you about it. And again, uh, answering it in this way would be another whole journey, but I'm just sort of putting it into a map of, of ideas um, for the sake of time. So let's say there in the middle of is, is our issue, the Western sexual identity ideology that I've just been describing to you. Now, the main opponent to that in the world today is the Christian church. And if you read American politics right now, there are a whole lot of um, largely well, Republican governors and states that are banning this sex education in schools, and in all sorts of social phenomena, because they're saying it is, it is damaging our young people. It is t really dangerous for our young people. And so, uh, all around the, the world, you know, Christians are writing and researching, and that's one of the things that, that I'm doing. Then I think there's just straight, you could almost say old-fashioned medical science, the stats of what proportion of the human race might have dysphoria or gender and genital duality, if you like, and the difference between nature and nurture and the fact that this cannot be a change in nature. Medically, human anatomy hasn't suddenly changed. But suddenly everybody wants to do this because they are being influenced by culture and the ideology, not by medicine. So we need like sane, you know, unemotional medical professionals. And I'm doing my best, I'm not a medical doctor, to, you know, meet with my medical doctor friends and suck their brains and say, help me get, you know, the research and so on, on that. And then there's social psychology, which is not the same as counseling psychology. It's the study of how groups of people in society think. It's sort of a blend of sociology and psychology. By the way, Furvut, who invented apartheid, was a social psychologist. And he wanted to, he knew clearly, to get it working, he had to brainwash the South African population. So the whole thing that ideologies like this are not universal to mankind. It's, it's, this is not happening in the majority world. And this has not happened to humanity through the centuries. It is a particular phenomenon happening in a particular society at a particular time because of particular causes. And so we mustn't sort of think, oh, this is now the, the, the reality that is, you know, uh, immovable. And then there is the majority world. And mostly, if you go around the majority world, there is not this high, highly individualized understanding. Family and clan and people is very important. So, you know, in, in this country, we have a wonderful word and term, Ubuntu. Do you know what Ubuntu means? So, I grew up speaking Zulu, so I can pronounce these words quite well. Umuntu, ngamuntu, ngabantu. All right, which means 
a person is a person because of people. You are who you are, not just because you're an individual, but because you are in community. See? So these are the forces we can marshal to expose this ideology. And the thing that I'm getting more and more anxious about, protect our teenagers and our kids. See? It's really quite urgent. And maybe we've got a little time in South Africa because we lagged behind, you know, California and Europe and stuff like that. And if we vakaskruk, good South African word, maybe we can get something done. So now let me just end by saying to you, which biblical teachings are now more important than ever? When God created humanity in his image, male and female, he breathed his life into an earthly body in the garden, and he said it was very good. Our bodies made as part of us in the image of God. Not just our spirits and our minds. The breath of God was breathed into clay. Remember, and we are this combination God came down into the garden to fellowship with man in their bodies there. This is before sin entered. So it wasn't because they had bodies that, that God couldn't fellowship with them. No, they were in bodies and he walked amongst them, the presence of God. When the kingdom came in the Exodus, God revealed his name Yahweh as the one who comes down and becomes present to liberate his people. And he became manifestly present in the cloud and the fire. It wasn't like a, a spirit world far away you can't see. God became, let's say, visible to the senses. He entered into this space-time historical world. He came down in the tangible, visible fire and cloud which filled the tabernacle and the temple. He came down supremely when the word became flesh in Jesus Christ. So that all the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Jesus. Now, John's gospel, that's written partly because he knew the beginning of this Gnostic teaching, specially emphasizes that the difference between, a, between being in the spirit of the Antichrist or a heretic and being a Christian is if you confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And those who will not make that confession don't even fellowship with them. He says, see, so that God hallowed a human body by Jesus being a fully human body. And then Paul teaches that all the glory and presence of God was bodily present in Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, through the incarnation, God hallowed human bodiliness. There is nothing essentially evil about being in a body. Of course, the desires of the body can make you to sin, but they also start in the brain and the mind and the, and the spirit and all of that, you see. It's not like because it's a body. So the human body is a good gift from God. And then even more important is the resurrection. So Jesus rose again and manifested a glorified Transphysical body. Gospel writers spend a lot of time 
all of them, on the resurrection, the phenomenon of the resurrection of Jesus. And yes, he now was transcendent in the sense that he could appear in a room and he could disappear and he had like the power of the spirit. But he deliberately said, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like you see that I have. Have you anything to eat? Yes, there's some fish. And he ate the fish. And when he disappeared, the fish had gone. Ghosts don't eat fish. And they don't make brise on the shore of Galilee. You know, you've never heard of a ghost making a braai, and they're not huggable. Ghosts aren't huggable, see? And Jesus is in this uh, body of the future forever. And his resurrection is the first fruits of the final resurrection of the end of the age. If we want to see what the ultimate future looks like, we can see it in front of our eyes in the risen body of Jesus. And his risen body is the prototype of our risen bodies. Paul says he will transform our lowly, our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And if we are still alive at the end of the age, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, this mortal body will put on immortality and I'll be given one of those bodies. And as I say, the older I get, the more I like this part of scripture. Because I also happen to believe that Jesus had this transition, another kind of transition, to the glorified body at the peak of life. He was about 30 years old. You know, when rugby players are at their peak. So when I get this new body, it's going to be like I was at the, at the age of 28 or 30. And you should have seen what my body was like then. It was a sign and a wonder to behold. See? And I can't wait to get that. So this is a very, not only a very exciting and hopeful doctrine of Scripture, but it is terribly important today. The age to come will bring a new heaven and earth. This planet renewed, inhabited by humans and resurrected bodies. See, a lot of people think that heaven is going to be this la-la land we float into, harps and things that's invisible. No, the new Jerusalem comes from heaven down to earth. And it, and it is this planet, restored by God, inhabited by humans in bodies that live forever. It's a much better hope. See? So we're not Gnostics who believe that we're going to escape the body after death. Or Greek philosophers who believe that. We are Christians who believe in the eternal embodiment and glorious embodiment of the people of God. And all of this is the renewal of creation. God restoring everything the way he originally created it to, to be. The end will restore what was designed at the beginning. The moment of bodily resurrection will either raise the dead out of their graves or transform those still alive in the twinkling of an eye, restoring our bodies to their created biology and then becoming imperishable. So I hope you don't mind me saying this, but if you have a willy, your resurrected body will have a willy, and you're going to have it forever. All right. So if you have transgender surgery, and you are a born-again Christian, and you are raised from the dead one day, you will be restored to your created biology 
not what you've become because you've been deceived by an ideology and formed captive to it and messed up your life. All right. So living in a good body is my eternal destiny. We've got to really get this home. This is the essential part of the gospel. So here is my challenge to you. I've been trying to uh, goad Dave and Colleen to do all these wishes that I have because he's the national director. He is a powerful dude, man. He can get churches all over South Africa cooperating and he can form, uh, you know, think tanks and commissions and teams and all of that to do all of these things. So I am going to not only fly back home with great relief, but I am going to fly back home with great hope that Dave is going to, and Colleen are going to lead us. Because, you know, she's very qualified also, you know, she's specialized in all sorts of things. What couple is better qualified, guys, than Dave and Colleen to do all my wishes? All right, so. We need to develop a teaching curriculum from little kids to teens to young adults that is geared to helping them navigate what they are going to face. And you know, we all know something about uh, sexual development. You know, when they're little, they play together nakedly, boys and girls, and they're fine. And then all of a sudden, boys think girls are very stupid and vice versa. And they don't want to be seen, you know, and show each other's nakedness and stuff. And then, of course, later on, they start thinking, oh, they're quite nice, actually, the other, the other type, you know? And then you have a whole lot of biology happening, and you've got to lock them up for 20 years. So um, we know about all those things. But you see, today they're telling teenagers, that's not natural. That's not right. If it, does, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, you can take drugs to stop it ha happening. So we need to teach them, no, this is God's good body he gave you. This is natural. You're going to go, you know, your mom and dad went through this as well. And look, they seem to be happy with their bodies right now. And... At school, you see, this is where we have to start creating actual specialists. We need our school teachers that we can contact to come and bring us the curriculum, say this is what they're teaching. And in our Sunday schools and young adults and youth meetings, we need to say, listen, when you get to school, and we need to teach it to them before they get to school, this is what they're going to tell you. And, you know, ultimately it means they believe in a different God. Because the Gnostic God is a different God. It's not the God of Scripture. And this is how you must work through it. And we need to teach them not to be, you know, adversarial and critical, but confidently, humbly clear about what they do. And, and we have to rewrite all of our curricula for young people and growing up adults to equip them. Sin is not essentially in the body. It resides in the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. Salvation transforms the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. This is the kind of content we need to be putting into uh, these things. Greater care must be given to 
teaching teens about puberty, its strange feelings and long-term effects, so as to embrace it without fear. I've said that. Teaching should include what the Bible means by the world and how to live for Christ as a minority in a majority neo-pagan society, including the possibility of exclusion, ridicule, and loss of employment. See, Abigail Shreer goes through stories of caregivers, psychologists, clinical psychologists, medical doctors, school teachers in America who have lost their lives and their careers because they have dared to question this ideology. That you, you are told that you hate us if you are concerned about your teenage children. You hate them because you're trying to stop them do what they want, which actually happens to be what we want to make them do. See? And it's a, a really strange world where love has become hate. We're concerned about this because we love our children. They tell us we hate them. I mean, it's a head-on collision. So we have grown up in a world where, we, you know, Christianity is very powerful and it's shaped our culture, but we're a little bit naive to think that we're in a Christian country or a Christian society. It is rushing headlong into being a pagan society. And historically, through the centuries, the Christian church has always been a minority, often a persecuted minority. And that's when the church has grown the most. Do you know the fastest growing part of, of, the, of the church in the world today is the Chinese underground church, which is a persecuted church. And it is growing unbelievably, signs and wonders and everything. So... The early Christians were a minority in a pagan Roman society. And they taught their people how to live. If you read the epistles, you'll see they're being taught how to live in that pagan society. And so we've got to start a whole new teaching on what is the world. It's not a place, by the way. It's not, you know, mug and bean. No, that's one of my holiest places. Um, <laughs> Worldliness is not a geographical place. It's a spirit. It's a teaching. It's an ideology. It's a worldview. It's a different God. And we need to teach people about what worldliness and how you live in a worldly society. We are called to love sensitively and supportively those who have genuine biological sexual dysphoria. That minute percentage of the population. But we must not be forced to use pronouns. Are they pronouns? Um, that people insist we use. So, again, in, in, in the States, if you're a school teacher, and you know, little Jane now wants to be called Tom. If you still call Tom Jane, you can lose your job. Now, I believe that we have to decide, and we should talk about this as churches, where do we draw the line? So to me, when somebody wants me to call them a, not a he or a she, but an it or a they, <laughs> do you know that is happening? Hey? You, you, know, you do know that's happening. Um, it, it is an infringement of my religious liberty to be forced to name you against your biological. I'm saying, no, 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 no. I love you because God made you the way you are. And I will keep calling you Jane. See, 
And we're going to get into trouble with that. And we need to get ready to the fact that we may first face persecution. And it'll be mostly an economic jobs security type of security, of, of persecution. Teenagers don't have a fully developed frontal cortex and can't make decisions responsibly. Only at the age of 25 is the amygdala fully developed. Why can't teenagers get driving licenses at 10 years old? Because they'd murder the rest of us, right? Um, you know, why is marriage only supposed to be allowed after a certain age? Because you can, I mean, I remember my first girlfriend. I was 16. I was going to live with her forever. You know what I mean? They call it a crush in, in, those, in my days. What do they call it now? Vibing. All right. All right. It's a vibe. But you know, vibes can come and go, can't they? We need to know a person a bit longer as an adult before we decide to say, I give my life to share with you for the rest of my life. Now, to not have the same rules when it comes to choices about sexual identity is just absolutely crazy. But I'm telling you, there's so much pressure, and it comes from this Gnostic definition of what it means to be a human being. And we need to fight that. Well, I'm about to go home. That's the last point of my last slide. And I now, you know, like to think that I have thrown a hand grenade into this congregation. And now you have to process. And Dave and Colleen have to be my salvation. As I try and contribute along with Alexander Fenter, and, you know, as local churches, as a movement of churches, as part of the wider church, we need to fight this fight together. God bless you. Dave, over to you. Sure, Derek. You got a spare seat on that plane too, bro. <laughs> yeah, wow, 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 eh? Quite something. Quite something. So, uh, yeah, this really is something for us to be chewing on and listening to the Lord about applications and press through, and we will certainly be doing that as we go forward from here. And, um, so I'd, I'd like us this morning just to pray for those who have uh, positions of influence over the next generation in particular first, if we can do that. If you're a teacher in any form of education at any level, or I'd like you to stand. If you teach others at any level or age and stage, would you just stand for us? Just so, because you're, you're going to be uh, front runners. All that Derek was saying is on me. I'll make sure I transfer it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you lead youth, uh, children's ministry, youth groups, any place of influence, boys, scouts, girl guards, whatever you might, if you have influence over others in different generations, love you to stand. So you need courage, you need clarity, it's, it's for you especially. Then I want to add to this, if you are a parent, would you stand as well? If you're a parent. <coughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Lord, 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 Lord. Sure. 
Nick, I want you to talk with Derek afterwards. Okay. De De Derek, you must meet Nick just now. Uh, he's he's going to be helpful to you. All right. Put your hands out in front of you as you just uh, submit to the Lord and, and I just invite his grace into your life for this role you're playing of an influencer, a God-ordained influencer of others. You are ordained by your vocation, but you're also ordained by your parental situation. That God has placed you uh, with the responsibility to care for those children, whatever age and stage it might be. It might be some of your really grandparents, but you have influence, and they look to us. They look to us as parents, as influencers. Father, we stand before you, and we say, Lord, this task, we can only do it if you help us. We can only do it because you are a gracious God. You would never call us without also equipping us. And thank you for the equipping of your gospel. And we want to declare today that we are not ashamed of your gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And today we say yes to your gospel, Lord, that you would help us to translate this good news into this area of sexual confusion and pain. Lord, we pray that you give us the wisdom and the words and the actions that would be restorative for people all around us, and especially when it's uncomfortable and others want to ridicule what we're saying and what we're standing for. But Lord, we pray that there'd be evidences here, there, and everywhere of you giving breakthrough after breakthrough, of people saying, thank you for helping me against this darkness and this deception. So Father, I pray for, for supernatural empowerment, ability to discern and not to be deceived by the agenda of the culture that's going around us with, with media, social media in particular. Lord, help us to, to stand by truth, truth that has come through 2,000 years. Since you came, Lord, we pray that we would have such a clarity of grasp of your gospel and our role in this generation, in this time in human history, to continue proclaiming that you to redeem fallen humanity. So bless these influences, these teachers, lecturers, bless these leaders, bless these parents. And Lord, help us to regain lost ground. Help us to rescue those that have been taken captive already and pull it back into the land of hope and healing. Lord, help us to be those that will mount uh, rescue missions and bring people back into sanity, away from this insanity of crazies. Lord, help us to, to do this. Um, because you, Lord, you are our hope. Because you are our hope. What we found in you, we don't want to keep to ourselves. So bless these who are standing in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I want to pray. You can be seated if you like. Just, I'm just, I, want to, I just want to say, if there's anyone amongst us who has suffered the consequences of, of sexual brokenness in any way, maybe you've been raped, you've been abused, maybe you've, you've simply had sexual experience outside of the covenant of marriage. Maybe you're living with someone to whom you're not married. Any of these are broken expressions. They're not gospel expressions. If you have sex before marriage, that's a brokenness, and God wants to set you free and, and invite you to forgiveness through confession and if you would like to have somebody we've got a pastoral team we've got Eden Life Healing Center we've got capacities to, to listen to confession and help you find forgiveness and healing and you don't have to go on living with guilt and shame and, and uh, all the broken things that come with control um, and diminished self-esteem and all the things that come and, and, and ongoing perpetuating confusions uh, there are biblical principles that will help us to walk uh, with clarity. So I want to invite you to, I'm not going to ask you to stand now and tell us all about it, but I'm going to invite you to, to be willing to be known. Come forward to one of the pastors, come forward to the Eden Life Healing Center, and we would love to help you 
walk a new way. That you can be forgiven from every broken thing in the past. It's, this is not unforgivable sin. If you can confess it, it can be forgiven. It's as simple as that. What is confessible is forgivable. The Lord's grace does it all. It is finished, he said. I want to just emphasize that. I don't, no matter what level of brokenness it might have been, it might have gone on for a long, long time. Some have been in sexual sin for 10, 20, 30 years, longer. Uh, but God can set you free and he can cleanse you and you can live a new life. It's a complete, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We want to declare that clearly today. Uh, and so I want to encourage you, if you've, been, if you've been in sexual promiscuity of any what, stage you are, in every level of depth and brokenness, God wants to set you free. So I want to encourage you to, to just quietly let it be known to one of the pastors, one of the pastoral team, Eden Life Center, and we would love to meet with you. And we'll commit ourselves to, to doing that over the next couple of, uh, couple of days, couple of weeks. And if you know someone for whom this is true, send them along as well. We want to be an outpost of the kingdom carrying hope in a confused, broken, broken world. Amen. And I don't forget, if you're new amongst us, you've got a free coffee on offer. Huh? We invite you to go and make yourself known with filling in a little slip, and uh, that'll help us to get to know people, and also to, to not just be a crowd, but be a community of people. So we'd encourage you to, to uh, make yourself known and get a free coffee at the coffee shop. Uh, and just to say, tonight, we don't always announce who's preaching, but we've got Mark. Stafford, preaching from Allowell North. He's preaching here tonight. This is Mark right here, son of Salvation Army parents. Nice to have Mark with us, and he'll be preaching tonight at 6.30, just a half-hour message, followed by worship and soaking. Come and enjoy that time as well. If you need prayer for something specific, and you wish somebody to pray with you, don't run away. Come up front here. We'll have some of the leaders come, and some intercessors will be here to pray for you as well. So this is a time for healing, anything that God might be doing in your life. And uh, so go and enjoy some fellowship together. And uh, let's give Derek a hand and say thanks again. Derek, appreciate you coming.